Well, now, if you would uh, try and take a Bible and open to Isaiah 55 at page 615. If you put uh, the bulletin down, take up a, if you can't find a Bible, you'll have to share with someone next to you, which might lead to very good things after the service. Isaiah 55, page 615. While you're turning there, a couple of weeks ago, a visitor I'd never seen before said to me, it must be really hard, year by year, preaching the same old stuff. (laughs) It was a sympathetic comment. And uh, I must say, coming to Isaiah 55, this fabulous, famous Christmas passage, the thing about it is not coming up with something new to say, nor is it my concern that you're very distracted and pressed right now, but it's trying to gather together all the richness of God's goodness and blessing and kind of ruining it, not saying it in a way that might be clear. And the lovely thing is that God understands this completely. So if you look down at verse 8 in 55, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your thoughts and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which means we can never think our way up to God and everything I say is kind of, unless God blesses it and brings it down to us, We're not going to experience anything, I think, of the thrill of it. The title of the sermon is The Invitation, but it really ought to be The Invitation to Experience the Peace of God. Because the key word that the book of Isaiah uses to gather up all the blessings that God has for you and me is this word peace, shalom in Hebrew. And that's why Christmas is littered with peace. You know, uh, Christ comes as the Prince of Peace. Uh, he brings peace on earth. Peace, will, there will be no end. problem is we have such a negative, narrow, and weak view of peace. We, we think of it as something negative. You know, it's the absence of war or strife or troubles. At least it's being in a neutral state to do what we want. The Bible view of peace, you know, is completely different. This shalom peace is positive. Uh, It's translated sometimes as wholeness, uh, completeness, um, soundness. It's not so much the absence of anxieties and troubles as the positive presence of happiness and welfare and contentment and sometimes it's full health and sometimes it's prosperity and sometimes it's well-being. It's the comprehensive blessing of God which we will fully experience then, but we experience now of security, happiness, joy, and fullness. And there's external parts to it, and this is very important. There's objective and subjective uh, elements to it. Because you can be secure, you can be whole and complete, and not experience it. You know what it's like. You can be in great danger, but feel completely secure. Or you can be completely secure and not experience uh, any trouble of thought. Or you can be completely secure and be anxious. Let me quote one writer. To dwell in shalom, is very important, is to enjoy living before God. It's to enjoy living in one's physical surroundings. It's to enjoy living with one's fellows. It's to enjoy life with oneself. This is very different than just knowing stuff. You can know the facts of the Christmas story. This is tasting, participating, enjoying, uh, 
resting our hearts in it now. And when the book of Isaiah speaks about peace, it's not so much peace with God as it is the peace of God. Peace with God, absolutely critical. There is no peace of God without the peace uh, uh, with God. And the peace with God is something Christ has brought us through his death and resurrection. And if you are a believer in him, that, never, that doesn't come and go. It remains with you. You can't, you can't step out of that. But the peace of God, that does come and go. Christian believers all through their lives struggled. None of us experience it all the time. And that's for a number of reasons, partly because this sort of peace is just not natural to us. So what I want to do is I want to fly over a couple of texts in the book of Isaiah. All right? So we're going to flick through the book of Isaiah, look at a couple of different texts so we can pick up this lead on peace. Is that okay? All in? No, I won't do that. <laughs> Just uh, flick back to, page, uh, uh, to Isaiah 48, please, for a moment. Isaiah 48, uh, verse 18 says, so this is page 609, this is God lamenting. He says, oh, Israel, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your shalom would have been like a river. Verse 22, there is no shalom, says the Lord, for the wicked. And that makes sense, of course, because if God is the source of shalom and all all goodness, if we walk away from him, it makes sense that we lose the enjoyment of peace. Look at chapter 52, over the page, over two pages. Chapter 52, verse 7, a wonderful verse for preachers. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, good news, who publishes shalom who brings good news of happiness, there it is, and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So peace and salvation and happiness and good news all come through the message of the gospel from God. And how do they come to us? How did they get there in the first place? What did God do to win it for us? That's where the servant comes in. Look at the next chapter, chapter 53. Verse 5, over the page. Speaking, this is a prophecy about Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, punishment that brought us shalom. And with his stripes we are healed. So as we come to the end of this section, the section in Isaiah is 40 to 55, the last two chapters go higher and higher in the privilege of God. And at the, you know, at the heart of that privilege is this sense of shalom. So look at 54.10, please. We're coming to our chapter. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of shalom, my friendship, Promise shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And then verse 13, this lovely picture of heritage and longevity. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the shalom of your children. 
One of the commentators says, now the floodgates of divine blessing have been flung open and peace flows like a river. It's a very clever quote because the water picture is Isaiah's key um, uh, image for blessing and for peace. Whenever you come across streams or fountains or wells or rivers or waters or rain or snow in the book of Isaiah, this is the blessing of peace that comes down to us and is effective. And as you look at chapter 55, which we read a few moments ago, we now move from how God has restored peace, uh, the, his peace to us. And chapter 55 is God's invitation to us to now participate and receive his peace. Okay? And I know Christmas doesn't feel very peaceful. Some of you are making lists in your mind right now of things you haven't done. You might be doing it on your bulletin. <laughs> I tell you, I can see. Um, but I'm not going to point you out. Some of us uh, feel, I think, you know, just a sense of uh, heaviness about you know, climate change, economic troubles, instability in the pace of life. And I don't want to confuse the peace of God with our current wellness uh, obsession, some of which is very helpful, I think. And I'm not trying to give you something on top of, something more to do on top of everything else you do. Uh, someone sent me a wonderful interview this week on the CBC Current show, The Current, all about how we've become enslaved to our technologies of wellness. And they use a thing called Fitbit as an illustration. Uh, some of you are wearing them, I guess. Um, Fitbit is a band you wear around your wrist that counts 10,000 paces in the day. And, you know, it can be helpful. 10,000 paces is better than 9,000. Um, uh, uh, we went on holidays with a guy who's six foot four, and he had one. And while he was pacing out 10,000, the rest of us were walking 100,000. The, um, the interview was called The Tyranny of Fitbit Golds, Which Create an Artificial Happiness. And they interviewed the author of a book called The Wellness Syndrome, Andre Spicer. And he says, fundamentally, the wellness industry works by shame. <laughs> he said, the Fitbit bracelet is like you know, a, a, um, a prison anklet they put on someone who's released on <laughs> parole. Ah, it's a bit of a hard take, I know. He says, um, he says, if you listen to the ads, to be healthy and to be happy is no longer an option. We all have to be happy and healthy. That's why we judge each other on the size of our bodies. And our obsession for physical wellness, he reckons, is because we've lost a sense of control. We don't believe in God anymore. He's not a Christian writer. Uh, we, um, we can't control the universe, we can't control the economy, our family or our job, and the only thing we're left to control is our bodies. And he says, and I quote, the 10,000 steps a day is the postmodern equivalent of rosary beads. <laughs> so, Isaiah 55 is not another rule for mindfulness. As helpful as that is, it is about receiving it's the practice of how we receive the peace that God offers to us, our God, our maker, our redeemer. How do, we, how do we experience it? You know, if God has prepared for us the enjoyment of his peace, what are we supposed to do? 
And the focus is on how we respond. And in the chapter, there are three practices, three, if you like, peace practices, three disciplines of peace for us to experience now. And each one of them has a main verb and then, and then a second thing. They're kind of double-barreled. And the first practice of peace is come and then buy. Did you notice as we come to 55.1 that God speaks the language of desire, hunger, craving, need, satisfaction. And God casts the net as widely as possible. Let me read verse, verse 1 to you. Come, everyone who, th- everyone, everyone who thirsts. You're thirsty for this piece? Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without peace. He says, there's no qualification, just your, your knowledge of your thirst. And then he says four times, come, 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 come. I have done everything to prepare. I am offering you something you cannot create for yourself, but it means movement on your behalf. We have to come. It's very important, you see, in the Christian life. The blessings of God don't just, if they're there, they don't just happen to us automatically. God doesn't force his peace on you. You have to come to him for it. You can be completely convinced in your heart that God can give you the peace and that he wants to give you the peace, but that conviction won't bring you peace. You have to come and deal with God. You have to move toward him deliberately in your heart. Go out toward him in peace. It's, it's almost the same in verse 6 where um, God says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. The word seek literally means stepping, walking, treading. It's not just a mental exercise to, uh, you know, to boost ourselves. This is a personal seeking where we're seeking the person of God. You know he is there. You know what he's promised, but you need to move toward him. And this is, this is not a grand and elaborate spiritual exercise we have to go through. It's just a genuine drawing near in our heart toward him. And when we draw near to him, we then come to the second part, which is there needs to be a genuine transaction between us and him, which is why we are told to buy. He who has no money, come buy and eat. How can you buy without money? This is a very clever picture. It means this. It means that true peace, shalom peace, is not a product of our hard work or spiritual insight or our best practices. It means that it comes to us from God and that it's incredibly costly. It costs the life of his son, chapter 53 said. All the money in the world cannot buy shalom peace. But God still says you need to come to me and buy it because there needs to be a legitimate uh, and real transaction. This first discipline of peace is not just approaching God, but it means uh, somehow dealing with God and taking from him the peace that he offers. It's, um, It's not like a soup kitchen where you line up and just something is given to you. Somehow God dignifies and honors us and calls on us to bring to him our need and our lack of peace, our poverty of peace, to draw near to him and interact with him and purchase the peace which he's given us the money for it, or there's no money involved. 
It's a good thing. And to show how good it is, God says it's not really just water. It's milk and wine to cover just about all of us, nourishment, enjoyment. And to make sure we understand just how good it is, God asks a very searching question at the beginning of verse 2. You ever notice God asks questions of us in the Bible? And the hardest ones are the question, why? He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? He's not saying don't pay your bills. He's not saying don't work and, you know, work on a retirement or whatever. This is much deeper than that. He says, what is it? He said, where is your real shalom? Um, What do you dream about or where does your mind go when you're really anxious? You could track where you think your happiness and wholeness comes from. He's talking about where our security is. And he basically, he's saying we can save ourselves a great, a great deal of time and energy by just practicing this first discipline, come and then buy, come and then buy. The second discipline is simple too. It is hear, hear and then eat. Jeremy was talking a bit about this. Uh, Let me start halfway through verse 2. If you look down at it, listen diligently, literally hear in hearing to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. Now, you know what it's like to be in a conversation with someone when they're not really paying attention, don't you? You know, when... It's so boring that they start texting. <laughs> or it's so boring you start texting. Uh, my, son, uh, my son does youth ministry in Richmond, and he has a box for youth group uh, that before they come to the Bible talk, he calls it the box of shame. And <laughs> everyone puts their cell phones in it, including him, before they open the Bible so they can listen together. God says, incline your ear, turn it like a satellite dish, tune in to what God is saying so that you can truly hear. This discipline is about learning how to be present with God when our minds are so easily distracted. I think it means a number of things. It means you've got to stop talking. (laughs) Harder for some of us than others. You've just got to stop talking because you can't hear if you're talking at the same time. Just talking about sermons. When you open the word of God, trying to remove other distractions, to close out other voices or take off the headphones, slow down, lentement. You're hearing the voice of the living God. Later in verse 11, he tells us, God tells us, he says, my word is a powerful thing. It's never going to come back to me void, open, empty. We have to open our spiritual ears, attend to his voice, and then as we do, we can eat. It's when we hear God's promises of goodness and blessing and peace and invitation, we don't just move to him and buy, but this second discipline is a bit more personal. We turn our ear and we eat. And as Jeremy rightly said, it's a picture of taking the blessing of God into our very system, digesting it, which means it's not about, this is very important, peace is not about our personal equanimity, you know, our emotional poise. It's about our growing friendship with God. And it takes time. So if you look at the end of verse 3, 
It's very interesting. He says, uh, God says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, which is a friendship term in Isaiah, my steadfast, sure love for David. Those of you who were here with us a few years ago will remember that this verse is quoted about Jesus in the book of Acts. Jesus himself, he is the Messiah, and he often puts himself forward to us as food. Listen to John 6. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. A couple of chapters later, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Because the peace of God is not separate from God. As he says in verse 2, come to me, or in verse 3, listen to me. You know that verse that we often use at the end of the service from uh, the book of Philippians, where Paul says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our peace is in Christ Jesus. So I think listening and eating is like abiding and remaining in him. It's consciously choosing to walk in his presence and delighting ourselves in the gifts that he has. Not easy. And the third discipline is this. It's returning, returning and trusting, then trusting. And I think this is the most active and the most difficult of the three. And what makes it the most difficult is that we have to choose to trust God and his word instead of ourselves. And we have to be ready to acknowledge that we've turned away from him again, again. Um, There's a certain, I just get tired of doing it again. I come back, you know, my ways have not been his ways. I've been self-absorbed again. I need his compassion and mercy in humility. That's why this is the difficult discipline, returning and trusting. Verse 7, speaking to the people of God, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You can't return to God unless you turn away from other things. And the two things God says here are, are your wicked ways. And wicked ways are simply setting priorities in my life and making decisions not based on what God wants. I might know what he wants or I might not even care what he feels about something. I'm doing it my way. And that includes our thinking. Because when we return to him, there needs to be a willingness to bow our imagination and our thoughts toward him. We cannot pretend with him. And God's thoughts and ways are so vastly different than ours, we have to learn how to trust his word. We have to continually, we have to continually come to his word. He says, my thoughts and ways are higher than yours. There's this vast chasm between them, and he reaches his hand across them with his word. Just look, uh, verse 7, black and white, there it is. So you you wonder if you can return to the Lord or what he's going to do, verse 7. It says in black and white, he will have compassion and he will abundantly pardon. 
We might have walked a huge distance away from him. Our thoughts might be very dark and despairing. Pardon, compassion are so far abundant. They are way more than able, capably able to deal with our deceptions or our doubts or our disobediences. You can't return to the Lord unless you turn away from other things. and You're not even going to want to unless you hear his promise, his invitation, his grace. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the sense of the peace of God, this wellness with God, this shalom peace comes and goes. Because God wants to wean us away so that we do trust him. This is why I think we don't have it so often and we live our own way and we have our own thoughts. And when, when he does, God kindly and compassionately tests us, often through suffering. It is the only way that we learn how to savor the sweetness of his shalom peace. We're going to cover this when we get back to 2 Corinthians, but in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is given a thorn in the flesh, some form of suffering. He prays three times that God would remove it from him. But, he says, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I'm sorry to say that the process to get peace is not very peaceful. It's going to ruin your equanimity and poise. <laughs> because you see, it's about a deeper source of contentment. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, uh, comes to us through and in our suffering and our illness and our depressions. It doesn't immunize us against them. Um, if you would allow me to be quite personal for just a moment, um, just as an illustration, and I know many of you face much more, but in 2009, I, uh, I hit the wall, as some people say. Um, I burned out. And it came with deep depression, physical pain, um, mental pain, emotional pain. And uh, I was off work for 14 months or so. For the years before that event, I was very busy. I was doing lots of good things. But if uh, you had asked me and pressed me, I don't think I was experiencing the peace of God a great deal. But during the time I was forced off work, <laughs> um, God, the peace of God returned to me. I don't know how to explain it really. I couldn't do a crossword puzzle. I couldn't keep up my end of a conversation. I still can't sometimes. I couldn't remember things. But God waited till that time to give me, give me back the gift of peace. I really had nowhere else to go. And I began to hear his voice saying these kinds of things, you know, come and buy, listen and eat, return and trust. And it's not all the time, uh, I don't have it all the time, but I know it more when it is absent than I used to. I want to encourage you with two things. After church today, when you get to speak to your friends, ask them about their experience of shalom, whether they experience, when they experience it, how they experience it. I think that would be a good source of conversation. And secondly, to encourage us that God is more than willing and able to do this for us, I just want to read the last four verses of the chapter. So I'm going to read from verse 10 to the end. 
Notice verse 10, God returns to the picture of water as the blessing of peace. He says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sow and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The same word that spoke creation into existence, the same word that holds our universe in its existence now, is planted as a seed in our hearts as we listen to it. And it will not come, it will do what God wants it to. And now in verses 12 and 13, God lifts our eyes to way in the future when we will experience the complete and eternal fullness of shalom in ourselves, never to be taken away. And the lovely thing is creation itself joins us in that glory, the freedom of the children of God. Just listen, verse 12 and 13. He says to these people in exile, you shall go out of all all that bind you. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in shalom. And the mountains and the hills that often are difficult for us to climb over, they're going to break forth into singing. They're going to help us on our way. And, they're going to, and the trees of the fields are going to clap their hands. That's going to sound like something. And instead of the thorn, the, you know, the, the desert bushes will come up cypress and the briar shall come up myrtle and it shall, be, shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen.